Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Prayer that I pray routinely, no pun intended, but I pray this religiously, <laughs> almost daily, and if not daily, it sure is the attitude of my heart, or at least I hope it is, that says this, this is the prayer, Lord, please continue to lead me and guide me today. Any of you ever pray a prayer like that? I hope so. Daily. When I'm, when I'm praying for the church, I'm praying, Lord, please continue to lead and guide your church. Make it clear that it's not just me or the church board or the worship team leading this church. Lord, you lead it. You make it clear that it's you, not just us. And why pray that prayer? Because part of the Christian experience and our duty as surrendered to Christ's Lordship is learning to follow the Lord's lead. I mean, is He really our Lord if we're not seeking to follow His lead? We are Christ followers, right? And so we should be seeking to follow Him. Christ followers understand that God has a will, and it is good, and it is wise, and we want to walk in that. And that's something of what we're going to talk about today as we resume our journey through the book of Acts, this uh, adventurous and exciting book. It's been teaching us many things, and one of them is that the gospel is advancing as He leads and guides His church. We've seen... Uh, the limitations of man and, and the apostles even throughout this book. And it's very clear that it's the Spirit of God driving the advancement of the gospel and guiding it. And so today we're going to look at five principles for following um, his lead from this portion of Scripture. But before we dive in, I just want to briefly remind us uh, of the purpose of the book and, and what has transpired. I just want to rewind a little bit because it's been... You know, so long since we've, we've been in the book of Acts, so all summer long we did a series on, on marriage, God-designed marriage. And so let's rewind just a little bit, um, especially for some of those who are new or just joining us. Remember, Acts is basically the second volume of the Gospel of Luke. So Luke is like volume one, Acts, written by Luke, is like volume two. In fact, in early church history... Um, Luke and Acts, these two different scrolls, would actually travel around two churches together, like two sets in a volume, or a vol- two volumes in one set. And uh, this reminds us that Luke and Acts are carrying a central theme or a central purpose. Last week we talked about Matthew's gospel and uh, how it was written to a Jewish audience. Well, Luke has another purpose in mind. He is writing to a Gentile audience, explaining to the Gentiles how the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is a light to the Gentiles, how, um, how chronologically and just, you know, uh, the Gentiles came to be included in this Jewish hope of the Messiah. Remember Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, I think it is. Luke says, I am writing this account, a thorough and accurate account, to exp- and chronological record explaining how that came to be, how the Gentiles came to be accepted in Christ as Gentiles. And I think a, a worthy theme title could be Light to the Gentiles. The Light to the Gentiles. Um, But remember that the New Testament news is not that Gentiles could get saved, 
We knew that in the Old Testament. Gentiles could always get saved, but now what's happening is they're getting saved as Gentiles without any sort of induction into uh, Jewish rites or, or rituals, uh, without converting to Judaism. And so Gentiles and Jews are saved as Gentiles by grace through faith in Christ. However, we're discovering for the most, no, Gentiles and Jews are saved that way, and Gentiles is just a non-Jewish person. But um, we're discovering that for the most part that Israel has and continues to reject her Messiah. I mean, that's how he ended up on the cross. They rejected their Messiah. And uh, what we're seeing in the book of Acts is that rejection is continuing. Uh, and, and we find um, Israel being darkened in unbelief, while actually the Gentiles are more receptive to the Jewish Savior, Messiah. It's, it's interesting, and, and to the gospel. Remember Bar-Jesus? This is kind of where we were when we left off a couple chapters ago. Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas, they visit the island of, of Crete, and they're witnessing, and you've got uh, this uh, Jewish guy named Son of Jesus, Bar-Jesus, who, who is a, he's a, you know, a false prophet kind of guy, and and he doesn't believe the gospel, and he's darkened in unbelief. He's actually blinded. And then uh, there's a Roman proconsul named Sergius Paulus who believes, right? And so he comes into the light. Basically, it's it's a that 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 account. Remember, was just a small taste of what's going on on a larger scale in this transition through the book of Acts and the blessing place of God. So a lot of uh, Israel is being blinded in unbelief, and then the Gentiles are becoming more. Receptive and uh, receptive, and um, you know Paul explains that in Romans chapters nine through eleven, and he describes this as Israel's stumbling. And I've been wanting to share this with you guys, but uh, this is also depicted in medieval art um, from the twelfth and thirteenth century. Uh, there's there's all sorts of images, like two women statues at the Strasbourg Cathedral in France that depict um, the church. Ecclesia and Israel synagogue. So Ecclesia stands triumphant. She has a crown and she has royal garb. She has a staff and a chalice representing divine authority. I mean, her her posture is confident, right? And um, she's looking down on synagogue. However, synagogue stands with a broken posture. Her face is is down. You can see a veil over her eyes. You can see the the, the staff that she holds is broken in several places, and the Torah, the copy of the Scriptures, the first five books of the Bible are about to slip from her hands. And uh, while we wouldn't agree with the anti-Semitic replacement theology that uh, those images taught, um, it is true, and it is a mystery, Paul says, that a partial hardening has happened to the nation of Israel. But uh, with that being said, I want to clarify. She hasn't stumbled. Paul says she hasn't stumbled so as to fall, has she? Israel's not completely rejected. Actually, Paul says he's proof that God is still saving a remnant from among the Gentiles, or from the Jews, sorry. He's still preserving a remnant, and I believe Old Testament and New Testament teaches a future restoration of Israel, even right there in Romans chapter 11, verses 26 and 27. But in Acts, we see this transition taking place. Uh, what's going on between these two entities of the church and Israel? And I also remind us of the outline of this book, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, but you will receive power. Remember this? This is the outline. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remote parts of the earth. And so this book is a geographically expanding book. It started in Jerusalem with uh, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. The Spirit comes as promised and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized, sealed by the Holy Spirit. And they begin to preach. Actually, Peter preaches. 3,000 Jews get saved. The church is growing and maturing. And, and then the, the persecution comes and they get scattered. And then they end up in Samaria. And, and, and they're preaching in Samaria here, north of Judea. 
And um, those Samaritans are half Jew, half Gentile. So we're kind of like another step further. And uh, after that, um, this uh, church up in Syrian Antioch kind of becomes the missionary church. The church in Jerusalem is still the mother church, in, in essence, but Syrian Antioch becomes the missionary church. Remember, and they sent out Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Actually, Mark went with them too, John Mark, writer of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, they went up into to Crete, and they went up here into um, Galatia and Turkey. Um, and they experienced a lot of success, but they also experienced a lot of opposition. And then after that, they returned home. And last time we were in Jerusalem, remember, and there was a church council going on. And what was the debate about? It was about the works of the law, the law of Moses and circumcision. And do these Gentiles have to, have to convert to Judaism or not? Right? Do they have to get circumcised? And, and, and that council reaffirmed and confirmed for all of the churches that no, Gentiles are going to get saved as Gentiles. God did not... Um, require Gentiles to have any sort of induction into Judaism before they got saved, right? They were saved by grace through faith in Christ, just as we are. And so, um, that's where we left off. And uh, Paul and Barnabas, after that uh, council, went back up to Syria and Antioch, and they've been there for some time, uh, probably a few months, maybe up to a year, where they've been pastoring this church at Antioch. And we pick it up in verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit uh, the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. So first thing we see here this morning is the decision to uh, revisit the churches. Um, sometime, a few months to a year later, Paul gets the itch, right, to go. I mean, I, I, I feel like that guy, whenever he saw a ship or a sailboat heading out, he wanted to go because he, he wanted to keep preaching the, the gospel to people who hadn't heard it before. Uh, man, if that would be our desire, that, that'd be great. Um, yeah, but on his mind, he's thinking, right, about these churches, too, in his first missionary journey, I mean, what has happened to these churches? Remember, they didn't have email and they couldn't text and stay in touch. You had to, you had to go. And, and, and uh, he's wondering, I mean, are these churches still even meeting? I mean, were they, were they continuing to thrive despite persecution? And did they deal with the false teachers, those Judaizers who were trying to usher in the, the law and trying to get these believers to live under legalism. And so he wanted to check on them. He wanted to strengthen them. He wanted to disciple them. And that's a good reminder for us that we're not just about seeing people get saved, but we want to see them also get discipled, right? He wants to keep discipling these believers. However, you see this disagreement occur between Paul and Barnabas, and you can kind of envision how it went, right? Paul says, let's go visit the brethren. Let's go visit the churches. And Barnabas says, great. I think it's a great idea. I'll go get Mark. And, and Paul says, Mark, don't you remember what he did last time? He, he, he deserted us, right? And, and, and we, we suffered for that because he was our, our helper. And he just, he ditched us, right? He bailed on us at Pergamum or Pamphylia when things got tough and Barnabas says yeah but yeah but remember when he left it, it showed us how much we needed him we needed Mark and you know I let's give him a second chance let's give Mark a second chance you know you know Paul hey I gave you a second chance no one else wanted to talk to you persecutor of the church but I came down and got you and I gave you a second chance and and uh, it says Peter just kept insisting or sorry Paul kept insisting they should not take him along who deserted them and had not gone with them.
to the work. And so, uh, interesting account, huh? You know why I like it? I like it because it shows us Paul and Barnabas were human too. Um, it shows us the church had, the early church had problems too. The apostles. You know, anywhere you have humans, you're going to have problems, right? You're going to have disagreements. And I'm, I'm glad that the author of Luke didn't airbrush the imperfections of the early church. It's transparent. His account is transparent, and, and, and we can appreciate that, especially today, right? He's a good reporter. He reports the facts, okay, as they happened. He doesn't airbrush it. Um, sometimes I think we're tempted to think that these men were perfect saints, and they had golden halos above their heads, and they were so spiritually attuned to the Lord that they just always knew what God was doing and how He was leading them, but we're going to see that's just not the case. That's just not the case, and, and uh, these are real people with real disagreements, having real problems, and wrestling with how the Lord was leading them in life. Um, here we see the difference is in opinions among the leadership over, gen, over a genuine concern that I think was method, methodological and concerning leadership method, we could say. Uh, it's, it's a case in which I think neither leader, Paul and Barnabas, I don't think either one of them is wrong in my opinion. But then again, I'm not one of those who thinks that this was a sinful blow-up either. There was a sharp disagreement, but I don't think they lost their cool over it. Barnabas, look at this, Barnabas is clearly validated in his choosing Mark because Paul's going to comment later in another letter, uh, bring Mark with you, right? He's going to say, bring Mark because he's useful to me in the ministry. So Barnabas giving Mark a second chance is validated. Uh, it was a good decision. But Look at the, the other part of the verse there, verse 26. The Lord and the congregation clearly approved of Paul's mission too. So both have validity to them. In Paul's leadership wisdom, the journey ahead is so difficult and the mission is so great that he doesn't want to risk it by bringing along someone who has shown themselves to be undependable and um, inconsistent. This is a small team, and this is a difficult journey, and it requires unanimity. It requires trust. It requires mutual support. They're depending on one another in this trip, in their journeys. Um, Paul's mind is on mission and how great the mission is, right? The, the work as a whole, but Barnabas, the son of encouragement that he is, that's what his name means, son of encouragement, his mind is on people and People are part of the mission too. Isn't that part of the mission to see people redeemed and to give people second chances? The mission needed dependable people, but the mission is also about redeeming people. So what are we going to do? Okay, one man said, um, this is a classic example of the perpetual problem of whether to place the interests of the individual or the work of the whole or the work as a whole first. And there is no rule of thumb for dealing with it. Some of you guys are, have, have led ministries and you're like, what do I do with this person? I mean, it, do we concentrate on the work as a whole or do I work, uh, focus on this individual? You know, it's like, it's a toss-up. There's no rule of thumb for it. Ministry leadership wrestles with this element all the time and it gives us our first guiding principle in that, hey, there's just some areas where we might feel led differently by God than someone else, and neither one's necessarily wrong. It happens all the time. The Lord leads us differently, apparently. I forgot the D on differently. What? Oh, it's up. Okay. The Lord leads USD differently. Sorry. Um, so think about how God wired Paul and Barnabas differently. I mean, Barnabas is the son of encouragement. He's a very encourager. He's a people person. And Paul is, is a missional-minded fella. And just the way God has designed us, the way he, he leads us, he's not going to lead us all the same. And, you know, that's by design. I think that's by design. I think it was perfect what happened in God's plan and in his timing. It's amazing that as a result of this disagreement, 
Look what you have now. God takes advantage of both God-honoring decisions unexpectedly to create not one mission team, but two mission teams. And they can cover more ground. And so you see a positive outcome even in this disagreement. It's a pretty, it's like the Lord just overrules it and says, this is going to be great. We're going to have two teams. Barnabas and Mark, you go to Cyprus. Paul and Silas, you go to Turkey. Um, Silas, by the way, he's a prophet from Jerusalem who came with them um, from Jerusalem to Antioch. He came with them when they returned from the council. But verse 40, as he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, uh, strengthening the churches. And Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. And uh, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. There's the the church council decree. And so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. And so it's kind of funny. We're going to talk about that. Uh, Timothy gets circumcised while also delivering a decree that says you don't have to get circumcised. What's up with that, right? But um, Paul and Silas, uh, you see here, are strengthening the churches. That's the second main heading. I don't know what is up with that. They're strengthening the churches this time. Um, There's this interesting side note I think that I want to, I think we should make, uh, just for chronological sake, um, in verse 40. That gives us some insight into what Paul was doing um, between, remember chapter 9, he, he fled from Jerusalem, and then in approximately 10 years later, Barnabas goes and gets him from Tarsus. That's how much time has gone by. Uh, what was Paul doing for nearly 10 years? They call this Paul's silent years because we just don't know. But um, uh, honestly, It appears he was anything but silent about Jesus. Paul was busy ministering, probably in synagogues and in churches up there in uh, Cilicia and uh, Syria. And, uh, you know, if he had an effective ministry doing that, sharing the gospel up there, that makes sense that Paul or Barnabas would know about it and go get Paul and bring him to Antioch to pastor that church for the time that they did. But um, anyway, I just, I mentioned that because that's uh, a big question mark out there. What was Paul doing all that time? Well, he was, he, was, he was sharing the gospel, right? But anyway, after strengthening those churches in his home area of Syria and Cilicia, uh, they crossed the Taurus Mountains through a famous narrow pass called the Cilician Gates, and then they arrive at Derby. And Lystra, and I just uh, want to give us a second guiding principle here, in that the Lord leads us plainly, plainly. Okay, um, in the next paragraph that we're going to be in, in chapter sixteen, verses six through ten, we're going to see God leading and guiding these men through direct revelation. And they're really curious as to where the Lord would have them go and preach the gospel. But that's their mode of operation then. Their mode of operation right now doesn't require such, you know, marvelous direct revelation. They're just operating normally. Like they have a normal, they're assuming a normal everyday approach to following the Lord's lead. You know, they don't need some some big sign in the sky telling them where to go and what to do. They know, based on God's word, what, he, what his will is, and so they know what to do, right? They know his, his will for their lives to strengthen these churches. They didn't need any sort of sign in the sky to, to know that that's what God wanted them to do. And so this is kind of the principle that we operate by most of our lives, uh, we operate by God's plainly, clearly revealed will in the Scripture. What do I do in this situation or that situation? Do I need God to speak to me audibly and tell me what to do? Or should I just go to the Word of God and look it up? And I know exactly what He wants me to do in this situation. 
And that's what, why God gave us His Word. I mean, that's how we operate the majority of the time. The majority of the time, the Lord's lead is simply and prayerfully operating according to the plainly revealed will of God in the Word. No need to pray, no need to question. Just operate in faith according to His Word. And uh, Proverbs 16.3 is a good reference uh, for this type of uh, bleeding from the Lord. It says, commit to the Lord whatever you do, and He'll establish your plans. Uh, A more literal translation would be, roll to Yahweh whatever you do. Uh, just submit and trust your God-honoring plans to Him. That's your reasonable service of worship, right? You know what God's Word says, and so you're going to do it. You know, you're going to roll it to Him. Isn't that a good picture? You open your hands. You, you roll what you think God would have you do to Him. I, I think that's the, pretty much that's the way we operate most of the time. But let's move on. It's here at the area of Lystra and Derby where Timothy joins the team. Timothy, he's going to become uh, the closest disciple of Paul. He's, he's going to be the most frequently referenced uh, ministry partner of Paul and an important New Testament personality. I mean, two of our New Testament books are written to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, pastoral epistles. And uh, Paul could say of Timothy that they were kindred spirits. They were equal sold. That's what he said in Philippians 2.20. I mean, Paul and Timothy just really clicked, and they worked well together. And so it's a neat relationship. But uh, our text says of him that he was well spoken of by the believers in his hometown area. And, and, and I take that to mean that he was a man of character. Uh, Timothy was, had character. He had integrity. He was growing in the Lord. He was eager to serve the Lord, seeking the Lord's will for his life. I mean, he's just the kind of young man, I think, that every pastor and every Paul is, is looking to disciple. And uh, he's going to play a critical role. Uh, he's going to prove to be a vital player in the gospel advancement because, did you notice his parents, he's got one that's Greek and one that's, that's Jewish. Greek father, Jewish mother. So he can now relate to both Jew and Gentile, But in order for Timothy to be more effective among the Jews, what does he need to be? He needs to be circumcised. And something he probably wished his parents would have done when he was a newborn. Um, because to do this as an adult, and that can in- incapacitate a guy for several days. And we know that from the Old Testament in Genesis 34. But it says he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that these false teachers had crept in and they were saying that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved? No, not at all. Um, It was just to remove a stumbling block uh, to his ministry to the Jews. If if Timothy wasn't circumcised, it's going to be a stumbling block. They're not going to want to deal with him. They're not going to want to talk to him. And so um, this isn't appeasing false teachers. In fact, if there was pressure on Timothy to be circumcised in order to be saved, you can, you can bet your boots, is that what they say, that he wouldn't have had him circumcised because that's what he did with Titus. Titus wasn't because they were trying to pressure him into it. This is all about being effective in ministry. This is about removing stumbling blocks and being winsome. Paul said circumcision and uncircumcision, he said they mean nothing. Like, they just mean nothing. But then Paul is also going to say this. He says, I become a Jew to win the Jews. I, I become as a Gentile to reach the Gentiles, a Greek to reach the Greeks. I become all things to all people so that by, by, by all possible means I might save some. So he's very strategic in what he does and who he's trying to reach. He, he remains somewhat flexible in his methods. He was culturally sensitive. And I think that makes for good principle for us today in that the Lord leads us adaptively, adaptively, plainly, and uh, differently and adaptively. And what I mean by this is like Timothy and Paul, we should be willing to adapt our ministry strategies to win souls. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean we adapt the gospel, right? <laughs> We're adapting our, our strategies to win 
souls. Because you think about it, what's winsome on the East Coast isn't necessarily going to be winsome in western Nebraska. Uh, what's winsome in one decade probably isn't going to be winsome in the next decade, right? Styles change, methods change. I mean, look at us now. We have a live stream. We have a podcast, all these different things. I think the churches that refuse to adapt tend to go under. And so we, we just have to stay on our feet. We have to be culturally uh, sensitive. That does not mean that big culture becomes our God or anything, but we do reasonably adapt um, to what's going on. We're flexible in our strategies. I mean, what, think about it. I mean, what might win one person won't necessarily win the next. You might win one person with gospel preaching, right? Open air preaching. You might win another through radio ministry. Another one might read a gospel track and get saved. Another just might listen to your, to a loving neighbor's testimony and get saved. I mean, it's, you have to have a, a wide variety. You have to paint with a broad brush, right? Uh, full spectrum. But more personally, let's think about not necessarily our ministry strategy, but us. Are we willing to adapt? Is our heart willing to adapt to the different ways that God's leading us in life and our calling in life? We need to be flexible. I mean, how... How wrong for me to pray, Lord, I want to follow you. And then the Lord leads and say, uh, yeah, but not that way. Sorry. Can't do that. I'll go anywhere but Africa. Isn't that the old song? Just don't send me to Africa, you know. That, you know that's not the attitude God's looking for. God's looking for the, I'll serve you any way you want me to. Sort of heart attitude. Um, or think about this. Maybe you have been a surrendered and sensitive follower of the Lord. Maybe He called you to go somewhere and to do something, to do sort of some sort of ministry. But do you have it in your heart that He's going to keep you in that for the rest of your life and you don't care what the Lord says, you're going to stay there? Right? Are you still sensitive to the Lord's leading in your life because it's, it's pretty easy to get comfortable and just settle down and, and, and quit looking for his leading in your life you know I think of I'm a pastor so I think about pastors right I've had people ask me why pastors come and go why do pastors come and go and how long how long do you plan to be a Shadron Berean and, and I tell everyone look I don't I don't plan on going anywhere I mean I, I came here for the long haul, right? I told my board, I said, I said, I want to, I want to bury you guys. That's how long I want to be here, which and technically that's not very long for some of them. <laughs> but that's my plan, right? I don't call the shots. I'm not the Lord of my life. I don't tell God what I'm going to do. I follow the Lord, right? Isn't that what we're learning? John's class? Sunday school? We don't call the shots. We're followers. And uh, I've learned to settle in. I settle in long term, but I also hold my plans loosely because God keeps me on a leash. Maybe you've sensed that too. And it's a lot easier to be led than it is to be yanked and drugged down the road, right? So Proverbs 16.9 says this, uh, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Amen? We make our plans, but He ultimately determines our steps. And I think our weather this weekend reminds us that seasons change. Don't you go through different seasons in life? That's a good thing. That's a good thing. And that's okay. It's refreshing. This weekend has been refreshing. Had enough of that 100 degree heat. But each season we're going to go through, guys, is going to prepare us for the next. And I want to encourage you to stay sensitive to the Lord's leading in your life. Um, third heading is the scenic tour to Europe. I love this. I thought this was a clever heading that I came up with. I'm taking all the credit here. No. Uh, God makes them take the scenic tour 
to Europe. Look at this. This is amazing. They passed through, oh, verse 6, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Whoa, right? They're forbidden by the Holy Spirit, and then they're Spirit of Jesus doesn't permit them. So, and then passing by, we could say through Mycenae, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and, and on the day following to Neapolis. And then from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we, that's a different personal plural pronoun there that we haven't seen yet. We, which means Luke joins the team and starts narrating from personal recollection. He says, we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer and we sat down and began speaking to the women who were assembled. And so, um, talk about frustrating, huh? Uh, they're, they're, they're moving westerly. They're going through this region of Asia. This is where they've been somewhere in here, Lystra and Derby, and they start going west towards this region of Asia, right? You think God would want them to go there. Do you see the the cities there? Colossae, Laodicea, Ephesus, Philadelphia, Smyrna. Doesn't God want to reach these people? And God says, no, you're not going there yet. It's to say, okay, well, I guess we'll go north. We'll go into Bithynia and Pontus up here by the Black Sea. You see Byzantium, Istanbul, Constantinople. There's a lot of good, right? God, that's a critical little street through there, right? You think God would want the gospel there? Nope. Where else are they going to go? It says they pass through Mycenae, somewhere in here, and they end up at Troas. Basically, they just run out of land, and they're at Troas. What do they do? What a journey, huh? Anyway, they, 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 uh, they had to be so frustrated. It feels like they're just wandering aimlessly through Turkey at times, I'm sure, wondering what in the world is God up to? Where is God leading me? You guys ever feel that way? Try to go here? Nope. Try to go there? Nope. God, what are you doing? I felt that way. The apostles did. Isn't that encouraging? (laughs) You have to love this unique description of the Holy Spirit, by the way, the Spirit of Jesus. That's a unique title for the Holy Spirit. That's not de-emphasizing the Trinity. It's emphasizing uh, Christ's promise that he would be with them always to the end of the age. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is described as uh, Christ in us, and uh, he's, he's the Spirit of Jesus. So he's with us through the person of the Holy Spirit, and this gives us a really comforting principle. Number four, the Lord leads us always. The Lord leads us always. That's the beauty, guys, of following the Lord's lead. It's that you know He is with you always, no matter what happens, whether it's positive or it's negative. Whether the wind's at your back. Did you catch that in there? The wind was at their back. They set a straight sail for, for Samoth race. You know what a straight course is? Right? Uh, the difference between a straight course and, a, and tacking in sailing. If the wind's in your face, that sailboat is going to tack. They're going to catch the wind, and it's going to take five days for him to get back. But when they're going there, it only takes two days because the wind is at their back. They just go straight there. And that had to be so refreshing for them after all that frustration to have the wind at their back. Right? It's just one of those Titanic moments, I'm sure, for Paul on the front of the boat. Never mind. Um, it just had to be refreshing. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter whether the wind's at your back or if the wind is in your face. It doesn't matter whether the door opens or the door shuts. God's with you. 
Yay. Amen. He's with you. And, you know, if you're praying that prayer in the morning, Lord, please lead me. Lord, please guide me. It sure makes it a lot harder to get mad when interruptions come into our lives. Right? Doors shut. Because if I I mean that prayer, Lord, you lead me and guide me, then I'm going to have to trust the Lord to direct my affairs that day, whether those affairs are good or they're bad, right? And and I'm going to have to think that, Lord, I have a limited perspective. I cannot see all the things that you're doing in my life. And I don't know how you're going to use positive or negative affairs in my life to direct me. You know, think about it. The canceled flight, the flat tire on Sunday morning, right? The, the broken appliance. Oh, man, you know, the, the, the broken glass on Thursday night when that gust of wind came up and slammed the garage door shut and broke the glass. Well, now I get to meet the glass repairman. You know, so I'm just saying. Not, not that it happened. It actually did, actually. But honestly, you have to look at some of these things like, what is the Lord trying to do here? Why is the Lord slowing me down? Who does he want me to meet? Does he want me to meet the tire repairman and just give him a word of encouragement, invite him to church? You know, it's just sometimes some of these events we have to think are God's blessings in our lives to keep us from operating in our timing because he might use these in in his way to advance the gospel. I mean, I'm convinced that God will slow me down sometimes with a slow car or a semi just to keep me from hitting a deer or getting in a wreck down the road somewhere. I mean, that's how I think. You have to train yourself to remember God is the one in control. And He can have the wind at our back or wind at our face and still be with us and guiding us. Uh, I love Psalm 32.8. It says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. He never takes His eye off us. He's with us, counseling us. He knows where we're at. He knows where we're going, and he's going to get us there. Okay, Understanding this changes our attitude about closed doors. It makes God's closed doors just as important as his open doors. His no is just as important as his go, and you can rest in his timing of things. And there's three points I want to say about doors when it comes to doors. Not literal doors, but God reserves the authority to open and close doors in our life. He's in charge. Secondly, God opens and closes doors in His timing, not our own. And then thirdly, God opens and closes doors His way. And it's because of these things that we have to trust Him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? What does it say? This is your Awana verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Trust in the Lord, because He's the one who's in control. He's in charge. We don't know why. I'm sure these guys were wondering, right? Why in the world are you preventing us from going where to, to Asia or to Bithynia? They didn't know why. But now what? We have, we have 20-20 hindsight that they didn't have, and we can see that in God's timing, perfect timing, He's going to plant churches in all of those areas. Paul's going to plant churches there. Peter's going to write to churches up in Bithynia. I mean, God's timing is always best. And I also think this could be illustrated, uh, God's timing could be illustrated by the way Dr. Luke joins the team at Troas. So, just shortly, next, next week, we're going to see them go to Philippi. Philippi was a, a prominent medical school. And Luke joins them just as they're going to Philippi, which could have been where Luke was from, or maybe he went to school there. And Luke is going to prove to be very helpful in their journey to Philippi. And so that could just be another indication. But we also don't know why God would sometimes guide them through direct revelation, like a vision, Right? Or through indirect revelation. I mean, he clearly didn't give them visions all the time. So, chances are you and I are never going to experience a vision like that. But we, this is how we, we tend to operate with indirect revelation. Um, 
as we prayerfully seek God's guidance through his word, uh, he might speak through a godly mentor, through, uh, through your local church fellowship, through the, the body of Christ. He's going to continue to lead you and guide you as you get plugged into the body of Christ. And your, the body of Christ kind of helps discern what your, your gifts are. And uh, he's also going to speak to us through preaching. He's going to speak to us through teaching. He's going to continue to lead us and guide us indirectly um, as we're busy carrying out his clearly revealed will. I think that's the way he operates mostly in our lives. And he gives us new information through those various means, and he continues to lead us and guide us that way through godly, um, godly influences. But one thing is sure here, God's method of guidance is not patternable. Have you, did you catch that? His method of guidance was not patternable, even for these apostles. And so that tells us that should not be our primary concern. I shouldn't have to have a vision of a man from Shadron Berean in order to go to Shadron Berean. You know, I don't need a vision of some big, great revelation from the sky. I just need to get plugged in and do what he's called me to do that I know he's already called me to do, and then he'll continue to lead me and guide me that way. Um, uh, to be honest, that it takes some getting used to, to learn how to listen to the Lord lead you and guide you that way. And uh, But it's so exciting when he really does, when he says go, and he opens that door. feels like the wind's at your back sometimes, and it's an amazing thing. But what's important is that we remain sensitive to his leading as he leads us one step at a time. You know, that's how he led Paul and he led this team. He didn't give them a second. Here, you know, before you guys leave Antioch, here's your second missionary journey map all laid out for you. Wouldn't that have been nice? Here's where you're going to go. Here's what you're going to do. This is how long you're going to be in Lystra and Derby, and then up to Troas. He didn't give them a map ahead of time. That's not the way the Lord works. He leads us one step at a time. At times, Paul might have threw up his hands, right, as he's on his way north to Bithynia, and he gets blocked again by the Holy Spirit, and he just says, Lord, I have no idea what you're doing. But notice, too, that he didn't give up. He didn't quit. Uh, the team didn't play the victim card. They didn't pout and say, well, we'll just go home. They just kept going. They just kept doing what they knew the Lord wanted them to do. They just kept moving forward, and through trial and error and obedience uh, and sensitive to his leading, he continues to lead them one step at a time. One step at a time. Trial, error, and patience. The one step at a time approach, I think, could be illustrated well by Psalm 119.105. 119.105 says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light unto my path. And the lamp that Paul had in mind, or sorry, not Paul, but David had in mind back then, you know, you don't, you don't need to think of these big bright headlights that we have these days when you think of a biblical lamp. Uh, they weren't like these fancy LED flashlights. A biblical lamp would have looked something like this, something that... Uh, uh, me and my kids uh, made this week out of some old taxidermy clay that I had left over. It was hard clay to work with, and so I basically made this lamp as an illustration. But um, they would fill this with um, oil, right? And this would be the wick, and they'd light it on fire, and you just have a little flickering flame. And this, this isn't going to put off a whole lot of light. And so when David says, and this would have been about his time frame, what this would have looked like, when David says, your word is a lamp unto my feet, you have to think, um, he can only see maybe one or two steps ahead. He can't see very far with this thing. And so my point being is that God doesn't have to give us, he doesn't give us his plan for our lives from beginning to end. He just leads us one step at a time. Just enough that we need to see ahead. Just a little bit of light. Just enough to see ahead. And he makes us trust him with where we're going. But my question for us 
as we close is, are we, are we sensitive to his leading? Are we still sensitive or have we just settled in and, and just decided we're going to do our thing? Are we still sensitive? Are we willing to follow him? And think about how important this is. You see, a believer's response to the Lord's lead is never trivial. It was never trivial. It's never trivial for Paul, was it? Because Paul and the team were sensitive to the Lord's leading in their lives, the entire Western world is blessed by it. Our response to the Lord's leading is never trivial. There may be great and untold blessings that lie where he leads us. In my old Bible school, we used to sing this song regularly in one of our professors' classes. Um, It's called One Step at a Time. And I have found out this is the way the Lord leads us. Uh, How many of you have heard this before? One Step at a Time. How many of you have sang this before? Come on. Yes. Children's hymnal. Bible camp. One step at a time. Only one step at a time. Some of you who know it, sing it with me. One step at a time. Only one step at a time. This is the way the Lord will lead you. One step at a time. Take that one step prayerfully. Walk that one step carefully. This is the way of victory. One step at a time. Isn't that great? Lord, thank you so much that you are God and we are not. And that you lead us even when the wind is at our back or the wind is in our face. We trust that you're with us always. And I pray that each one of us would remain sensitive to the way that you're leading us in our lives. And that uh, you'd speak to us when we have genuine concerns over the big issues and directions we're considering. Maybe it's a job change. Maybe it's a different ministry. Maybe it's getting involved in a ministry. Whatever it is. Lord, I pray that you continue to lead and guide your people here. Shepherd them. And then, Lord, just help us to understand your word so that we can operate by the plain and clearly revealed principles that you have for us in it. In Jesus' name.